Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, Pacifica host Garland Nixon on elections, drunk driving, the nuclear codes, fruitcakes, and bananas. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon, and I got lots of stuff going on here, as you know. And as you know, people like Garland Nixon who say all kinds of things that are totally and completely unacceptable in a civilized society such as ours, if you get my point. Um, You know, I used to be mainstream media. People like me are not allowed to be on mainstream media. A lot of us are not allowed to be on mainstream media, particularly with the, uh, you know, with the um, perspectives that we are presenting on the Gaza um, conflict, various other conflicts, you know, and you know me, I am neither Republican nor Democrat. I do not like either party. I do not feel that either of them stands up for us. And I feel like, you know, we need to find a different direction to go, but I respect, um, everyone's right to support any party or any candidate they want, vote for anybody they want to. I do believe that that is something that, you know, has to be respected. I don't expect people to agree with me. I'm trying to come and not trying to, um, create clones and actually I enjoy when people call in and disagree with me I really enjoy that I think the only way to grow you know the only way to improve yourself is to um, challenge yourself and to have challenge and have people challenge challenge you so you know some people I know a lot of people get mad angry get mad when people disagree with them I look forward to it I enjoy it and I feel that's where I get my growth you know um, I've been through you know like everybody else been through a lot of things in my life and that's like that not been through a lot of things in life that is what life actually is the the things we go through the growth that we get from the difficult times and I've had people ask me you know if you had to go back would you do it any differently Mm -mm, I wouldn't do it any differently because I wouldn't be the person that I am today if it weren't for that I wouldn't have been driven to learn and driven to read and driven to improve myself and to do all the self-help and all that stuff that that gets me to where I am today if I you know maybe if I had a soft and easy life which in some ways I have in some ways I haven't okay I'm not going to argue lie and say some ways I haven't had soft and easy but other times other ways has been difficult you know I guess with all of us right bottom line is this so I get here I get to say whatever I want to say for the most part, as long as I don't use any of the bad words. They don't give me a hard time. And uh, you get to listen to alternative perspectives. So I'm going to talk about a couple things today. Oh, 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 wait a minute. You got to give me a uh, give me a second. I'll tell you why. You got to know something about Garland Nixon. I'm a creature of habit. I don't know if there's people out here that that, you know, listen, but I'm like one of these people that I do the same thing over and over the same way and like if something's moved it'll freak me out or if something's like not the same it'll freak me out I'm like the patterns got to be the same way things have got to be the same way yeah I put my keys in the same place all that kind of stuff not saying that I'm perfectly neat all the time but I do the same way you know like every morning I go to the Dunkin Donuts near me right and I get a coffee small coffee with oat milk they don't even have to I don't even have to say anything I walk up to the counter and they're handing it out because they know me I'm going to do the same thing day in, day out, the same way, the same time, blah, 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 blah. So I'm comfortable with that. Now, let me start here. Oh, my gosh, we got news. We got news. We got news. A couple of things have happened recently. I don't know where to start, so I'll start at the beginning. Let's start here. A couple of things, as you probably know, I'll give you a little background. Um, There's, you know, Donald Trump. One of the things that Donald Trump was charged with was um, having classified documents after he was um, out, they found some classified documents in a couple of his places, right? Okay, so within a, so he gets charged with a crime, and they're like, okay, he might get found guilty and have to go to jail with that. So within a couple of months, lo and behold, they find some classified documents at Joe Biden's home in boxes in various various locations, and so they find that he has some classified documents too. And so now there's the big discussion. Donald Trump's been charged with it. Joe Biden's have has some. Is he going to be charged with it? Now, let me say something. If you know anything about me, if you know anything about me, you know I don't have a team. You know I don't have a team. I'm not the kind of person that says I want something to happen to my enemies. I want a separate standard for my enemies than I do for my friends. I want if I hate somebody, then do whatever you want to them. And if I like somebody, you got to let them go. I believe in equal protection under the law. I believe everybody should be treated the same, et cetera, right? So here's what happened. This is very interesting. 
So the Department of Justice did an investigation into Joe Biden. And what the Department of Justice said, one of the significant reasons that he had him, I've read the DOJ report, seems pretty clear based on the DOJ report that there was um, there was evidence there to charge Biden. There was evidence there to charge Biden. What the Department of Justice said was that on two occasions, when Joe Biden spoke, one with uh, his ghostwriter in 2017, recently recorded conversation with the Department of Justice, he showed very poor memory problems. He couldn't remember when his son died, like within 10 years. He couldn't remember when he was vice president, the years that he was vice president. A number of other things that most people should be able to um, remember. This is the Department of Justice. This is Joe Biden's Department of Justice. Not Donald Trump's Department of Justice. Not Garland Nixon's Department of Justice. This is Joe Biden's Department of Justice. So I read the report, and certainly there is ample evidence if they chose to to, to charge Joe Biden the same as they charged Donald Trump, they could have done it. What the DOJ investigator, special prosecutor, whatever you want to call him, decided, and it's all over the news. You can look it up right now. You can just bring up the news and look it up. Was that due to Joe Biden's significant memory problems, I'm paraphrasing, that if he went to court, that the jury would see him as a sympathetic old man, elderly person, excuse me, sympathetic elderly person with a poor memory, and it would be hard to get a conviction. Now, I want you to think about this right now. He's the president of the United States. Imagine, just for a second, let me give you an analogy. You go to get on an airplane, and you know how when you get on an airplane, when you walk in a door, they oftentimes the crew is there, the pilots and different people. Hi, welcome to you so-and-so airlines. Hey, have a nice flight, blah, blah, blah. They're standing there, right? And can you imagine if you walked in and there was the pilot, and you said, oh, wow, uh, they're uh, Pilot Nixon. Did you drive here today? And the pilot said, nah, I lost my, li- I, uh, my, um, I lost my license. Why? Well, my eyesight is bad. Um, I had five accidents and four drunk driving arrests, so I'm not allowed to drive a car anymore. I am not safe behind the wheel. I can't see very well. They won't, they won't let me drive anymore. And you said, and you're the pilot? And he said, yeah, we'll be flying to San Francisco. We're going to be going 500 miles an hour, 30,000 feet. Should be. Looks like a pretty smooth ride today. Uh, when we get over uh, the middle of the country, we're going to have a little button. And you said, time out. You are not competent to safely operate a car, a motor vehicle, on the streets of Washington, D.C. Am I correct? And the, and the pilot said, yeah, absolutely. And you're going to be uh, flying this Boeing 767. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's what I do, a fly plane. Are you getting on that plane? Probably not, are you? So here we now have a president. That the Department of Justice, not Trump's Department of Justice, Biden appointed the leaders of the Department of Justice, his own Department of Justice, has just released a document that says they can't charge Joe Biden because he has a poor memory and he would likely not get a conviction because he'd become across, as they put it, a sympathetic elderly man with a poor memory. So. What are they saying, really? Let's go to legal terms. Let's go from a legal perspective. What, is, what are you saying when you say, I can't charge this person, I can't take this poor person to court because, you know, they got memory problems or whatever? What you're saying is they're, you know, not mentally competent, non compass mentis, right? Why is that significant? Because when you're in court, you have to prove something, again, a Latin term called mens rea, criminal intent, a criminal state of mind. So when you say that a person is not mentally competent, what you're saying is you couldn't prove intent. You couldn't prove a criminal state of mind. Now, they're also saying, look, when the jury sees this guy and he's an old dude huh, stumbling around, as they say, an elder, a sympathetic elderly man with a poor memory, they're going to ask him questions. But he's the president of the United States. He's the he's the leader of the Democratic Party. So right now. We are basically flying in a modern jumbo jet. 
with a guy who wouldn't be competent to ride a bicycle according to his own Department of Justice. But it gets worse, far worse. So according to the Department of Justice, Joe Biden is not mentally competent to stand for himself in court. He's got the nuclear codes, but he's not competent to stand for himself in court. And the Democratic Party says, oh, let's give him another four years. They have literally taken other names off the ballot. I can name four states right now, Massachusetts, North Carolina, Florida, and Tennessee. They won't put anybody else's name on the ballot but his. Joe Biden, that's it. He's the nominee. The Democratic Party has said, this guy's the nominee. Give him four more years. His own Department of Justice said he's not competent to stand for himself in court today. And you wonder why Garland Nixon is an independent. Republicans got Trump. He's out of his mind. He's completely bananas. So that ain't an option, and their policies are bananas. That's not an option for me. The Democrats are nothing but a war machine. That's all they are now. That's all they do is war. They got nothing for you. They got money for Ukraine, money for genocide in Israel, money for anybody that's blowing the hell out of something. If you want some education for your kids, maybe you need your roads fixed. Hey, how about some infrastructure? Not happening. So we got a party of fruitcakes and Republicans with Trump, who's a madman. And we got a party of warmongering genocidal crazies who tell us they're the good guys. They're standing up for minorities and the LGBT community and blah, blah, blah. And they got a man that they want us to vote for for four years who really exemplifies the party. At this point, that's what the Democratic Party is. Worthless, nothing, incompetent, unable to manage at the most basic level. You put this guy out and you expect me to take you seriously. His own Department of Justice says, we can't send this guy to court. You got to be kidding me. You think I'm going to charge this guy? Put him in front of a jury? They're going to laugh me out of court. It would be, I will be sanctioned by the judge under Rule 11 if I do something like that. That's, uh, there's no way I can bring this guy to court. You got to be kidding me. Can't do it. Really? You can't bring Joe Biden to court? I can't do it. The man ain't, you know, come on. He ain't right. As my mother would say, his mind ain't right. That boy's mind ain't right. That's what my mother would say, right? His mind ain't right. But he's got the nuclear codes. He's the president. Hey, bomb Yemen, bomb Syria, bomb Iraq, bomb everybody. He's not competent to stand for himself in court. And the Democratic Party is sitting there wondering why it's bleeding votes. Gee, I see all these polls and it says black folks and black people and Latinos and young people are bleeding votes from the Democratic Party. I'm scratching my head. Gee, I, I, why would that happen? You insult our intelligence. Intelligence is being insulted. And now, you know, I was watching this thing. There's Bernie Sanders the other day. Oh, genocide Sanders, right? Genocide Joe, I guess genocide Sanders is going to support him too. And there is old genocide Sanders. And they're like, yeah, so why should we vote for Joe? He stumbled, man. He was, I felt sorry for Bernie, tell you the truth. The look on his face was like, ah, man, why did they have to ask me that? Um, and he says, well, Trump is so bad, we've got to stop Trump. And I'm like, that's all you got now? And see, here's the problem. And I've heard this. I ain't, you know, me, I think I'm probably going to write in the ghost of Eugene Debs. That's the direction I go. That's, I'm leaning towards the ghost of Eugene, Eugene Debs or the ghost of Hugo Chavez. That's who I'm looking at writing in, right? But Bernie, oh, we got to stop Trump. That's all they got. You're running a man who his own Department of Justice says he's not even competent to stand trial. You can't very well tout the qualities of your candidate. Hey, why should we vote for Joe? Well, he's uh, Trump something is something Trump. They mock us. They laugh at us. We are at the point where the ruling elite is sitting back laughing, grinning. Mocking us, putting a guy out that, and telling us to run for a guy, to, to vote for a guy 
who who's not competent to go to they won't put him in front of a jury think about this think about it. you don't believe me look it up it's all over the it's all over the online news everywhere right so you got a guy that you can't put in front of a jury because as they say he's an sympathetic figure an elderly man with a poor memory you know what that's what you're telling me is my best option for the next four years hey what's oh i should have voted for joe biden well you know he is a sympathetic man an elderly sympathetic man with a poor memory i don't think that's going to garner a lot of support i don't think what are you going to go knock door to door hello yes mr nixon yeah uh We'd like you to support Joe Biden. All right, what what you got there? Hook me up. Well, he's a sympathetic elderly figure with a poor memory. And I'm like, get off my property. Get, get, Get off my property. I wish I had a dog and I would have him bite you. But since I don't, just leave my property. You, 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 you're disgracing yourself. The Democratic Party has soiled themselves. That's the only way I say it. They pooped the bed once and for all. They have soiled themselves in front of all of us. I guarantee you there's people right now in the Democratic Party listening. And I ask, how can you look yourself in the mirror? And coming up next on Arts Express... These were very, very hard to come by. So was our cargo. Whatever you got going on here ain't exactly approved by Congress. It's a military operation. Really? Who are you? Ripley Ellen, Lieutenant First Class, number 36706. Ellen Ripley died 200 years ago. You're a thing, a construct. They grew you in a lab. What the hell is going on here? He is breeding an alien species. I wish you could understand what we're trying to do here. Now they brought it out of you. Not all the way out. You want to tell us what this is? It's a queen. She'll breed. You'll die. Ellen Ripley died trying to wipe the species out. I'm not anxious to see her taking up her old hobby. I can feel it. I can hear it moving. So here you, like, ran into these things before. Yeah. What did you do? I died. We're moving. That's a standard emergency procedure. Any serious problem in the ship autopilots back to home base. What's home base? Earth. What is that? were scenes from the 1997 Alien Resurrection, directed back then by French filmmaker Jean-Pierre Jeunet, our guest on the show, joining us from France. Jeunet discusses the massive farmer uprisings, as well as a bit of gender shape-shifting creatively with Amélie, his main character in that 2001 classic, now in re-release, declaring... I am Emily, of course, and known as well for that odd post-apocalyptic surrealist black comedy delicatessen featuring a combo butcher landlord of a rundown apartment building into something about food and disposable workers. First a little from Emily, then Jean-Pierre Jeunet.
This is Amelie. With the discovery of a simple childhood treasure, she begins a quest to fix other people's lives. And perhaps her own as well. because 23 years later uh, it's a kind of dream because now it's so difficult to have a film uh, that stay because when you watch the platform for example you have so many series so many shows so many films it's like to watch the niagara falls and every drop of water is a film now and so they want to release again amelie it's, it's amazing and you know it never stopped because for example two three years ago in Cannes film festival it was a show, uh, a screening on the beach for free, and it was a rainy day, so they warned me probably we will have 50 people. No, it was packed, 800 people, and they refused the 200 other people. So it continues at the Café of Family. I live just beside the Café. It still has some picture every four minutes. So the, phen the phenomenon of Family never stopped. So it's a kind of dream. Maybe I am dead um, 23 years ago and I am in paradise and everybody plays a, a role for me. Maybe it's, it's not the true story. It's like the Truman Show, but in reverse, you know. <laughs> and is, would you say your film and this story is in any way autobiographical? Of course, I am Amelie. Of course, <laughs> I am Amelie. You don't recognize me. <laughs> um, yes, because you know I took some notes during 25 years. Uh, when I say not, it's uh, anecdotes, souvenir, funny stories. I am very good to remember the funny things of the life, and I'm very good also to forget the worst. And uh, well, I decided to make a film with that, but it wasn't easy because so many. It was like crumbs. And it's not easy to make a film with crumbs. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time to find the, 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 the main way of the film. And one day, looking at my notes, I, I read the, the, the line, uh, a girl helping other people, and she doesn't ask anything in return. And I thought, oh my God, this is the main subject. And from, from that moment, everything was easy. Easy to write, easy to shoot, easy to edit. Not easy to find the money, of course, but... But it was a kind of, uh, it was easy after I found the main idea. Mm. And you once said, cinema since the new wave always seems to be about a couple fighting in the kitchen. I prefer, yes. I prefer to write positive stories. Please explain. Yeah, no, this is a French cinema. They love <laughs> couple fighting. And even the Golden Palm, Monsieur, nominated three times at the Oscar. Uh, anatomy of a fall and this is the main scene it's a beautiful film i don't want to make bad things about the film but the main scene it's a fight scene between a, a couple and they fight in the kitchen so i was so i was laughing because i was crying when i saw it it's a kind of cliche but it's often the case of course and uh, with when i started with marcaro even at the 30 years ago we wanted to make something else Delicatessen was very special. It was uh, something, I don't want to say new, but it was, uh, and we loved so much the, the, the picture. 
because a film is not only dialogue, it's not only a story, it's also pictures, costume design, uh, uh, um, production design, and sound, uh, and music, and everything. We want to, to play with everything, not only with a, a psychologic movie, you know what I mean. And it's a tradition of the film from the 40s, and we forgot that now. Probably the new wave erased that. But I love so much uh, the film from Marcel Carnet, Children of Paradise, um, Mr. Uh, Miss K, this kind of movie. I love it. I love it. And it's not a, it's not just, a, how can I say, I collect everything uh, about the film. And every year I will watch uh, my favorite movie from this, this director because it's visual. And I wanted to ask you about your new film, or I think it's new, Amelie, The Real Story, in which you... Oh, have you seen that? Yes, in which you get very political. So I wanted to ask you, since you this new direction, very political, what you think about the uprising of the farmers all over France? Uh, no, it's not political, it's just a stupid joke. <laughs> it's a, a kind of parody of complotist people. I, I love complotist people. They are so silly, so stupid. This is, uh, uh, I, I love that. And I made a kind of parody. Because, you know, I, I need the freedom. This is the best thing in the life. And now it's so it's getting difficult to find the money to convince people to make a new film. So when I am in uh, Provence, like right now, I love to build some stuff with my hands. It's very important, some kind of sculpture with the stuff finding the nature. You can see that on my side. And also short film. I made an animation short film with my creature. And I made the true story of family. You can see that on YouTube. And uh, please watch that and speak about that because we had only 400,000 views because I'm very bad with social network. And uh, it was just for the pleasure the pleasure to make i love to make mm. and what about what are your feelings about the farmers i mean what's happening could have been a, it could have been a scene in that film <laughs> no i don't think so because uh, i have nothing to say francois truffaut was used to say i have nothing to i have no messages i have nothing to say but i have plenty of uh, story to tell and this is my theory alfred hitchcock uh, said uh, the same thing about some films are slices of life. He prefer he prefer to to make slices of cake, and this is my my conception of the cinema to give some pleasure during two hours for the audience. And the former, I complain for them because they earn just a little bit money. It's difficult, and they work a lot every day. It's very difficult, and they never complain. This is the first time for one time I support a strike because in France it's every day, every every time for everything. Uh, but for for one time, I complained of those people. Mm. Now you just said that you are Emily. What about what is it about women that intrigues you to make them the main characters in your stories, in some of your stories, including Audrey Tattoo and Jodie Foster? Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know. This is my feminine aspect, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. I, I cannot imagine uh, Amelie with a guy. I don't know. I don't know why. Probably it's more... Uh, a, a woman is a woman. It's more subtle, more feminine, more, uh, you know... A, a guy, they are more brutal. I mm. cannot imagine uh, Matthew Kasovitz uh, doing this kind of stuff in the <laughs> film. No, I, I cannot. <laughs> and Jodie Foster, it was nice because she called me. I would like to shoot in French because she has a perfect French. Uh, but unfortunately, I did not add a, a main character. But I proposed a uh, cameo, and she accepted, and she did, and it was great. It was a great story. And how do you feel about your experience making a film in Hollywood? What was that experience like for you, Alien Resurrection? Oh, it was a great experience, and you know what? Because at this time, they gave me almost a total freedom. I would say I had 95% of freedom. And I think it couldn't happen today because now so many uh, executive producers, so many pressure with the marketing. Now I think it couldn't happen. But they gave me the freedom. Imagine I was uh, after Ridley Scott, James Cameron, and David Fincher. I was sure I would have been fired after two weeks. No, it was just a pleasure. Of 
course, it wasn't easy because I heard every day you have to go faster, you have to make only one beautiful shot on three, it will be enough, this kind of stuff, you know. But um, it, it was a strange game to, to resist to the pressure. But the boss, they gave me the freedom. And at the end, when they wanted to make a director's cut for the DVD, I said, no, no, this is my cut. I am proud about the film. So, but it was an experience. Uh, I prefer the French total freedom, when, like I made Amelie, of course. Mm. And uh, I had another proposition from Hollywood. It was Harry Potter. I think it was the fifth or the fourth piece, I think. And I turned off because I just finished a very long engagement and I had to, to start the next week. I, I was totally exhausted. And probably also because everything was ready, the costume design, the production design, the script, the casting, I had to be just a director and I turned off. But sometimes I regret, I said, oh, I could make an Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to ask you, when Jean-Pierre Junet looks in the mirror, what does he see? He see an old man, a 70-year-old <laughs> man, very fat. Oh, man, what a scandal. It's a, such a scandal. The life is too short. It goes too fast. I heard that when I was young, but now it happens. And I, I, I'm very pissed off about that. I never signed a contract to be an old man. <laughs> <laughs> and are you working on anything next? Yes, I am writing an adaptation from a French novel. Uh, the English title is Fresh Water for Flowers. It's a masterpiece. It's a huge success everywhere in the world, even in USA. And I am writing the adaptation. And uh, I just finished a commercial for Chanel. I love uh, this uh, brand, Chanel. They are very elegant. It's for a new perfume, uh, Chance. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in USA right now, I think. Mm. And is there any last word that you would like to say about the new release of Amelie to audiences today. I recommend to the young people to go because it's a pleasure for everyone from 5 to 75 or 85 or 95. Uh, the other day, uh, a couple knocked at my door of my office and a young girl, five years old, uh, saw the poster and the, the parents told me she watched Amelie every day. Mm. So it's even for young people. So don't hesitate to go to see Amelie even if you are very young. And would you say that there is a common thread or idea that runs through all your films, Amelie, Delicatessen, and all your work? And what's the question, sorry? Would you say there's a common idea or thread? A common idea? Yeah. Yeah, probably this is the story of Tom Thumb. You know the, the, the fairy tale with the, the kids lost in the forest with mm -hmm. the, the brother? and he put some stones to find the way back. And this is the subject of my film. A young kid, even Amelie, she's a, kind, she a kind of kid, and they fight against the monster. The monster of Amelie is just introversion. But in all my films, it's a kid fighting against a monster, and they use imagination to win. Somewhere, this is the story of my life. Mm. And uh, I don't want to speak about my monster. It's very personal. But I set my life with imagination. Mm. Voilà. Okay. Voilà. <laughs> voilà. Okay, thank you so voilà much. Voilà is the most important word in French. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Voilà. Thank you so much, Jean-Pierre Junet, for thank joining for us on the show. Okay. All right. Have a, have a nice day in New York. Ciao, ciao. Au, au revoir. Hello, everybody. This is Graham Nash from the Hollies and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Crosby, Nash and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Yes, I've been in a lot of bands. I want to say aloha and fond wishes to everybody listening to Arts Express.
Arts Express with Arts Express, Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro in a time travel excursion on the global cultural beat and having something to do with the Vienna stock market, museums, Freud, the founding of Zionism, the Austrian Liberation Front, and Hitler. This is Bro on the global cultural beat, Breaking Glass, and today's episode Vienna, City of Contrasts and Contradictions. What to say about Vienna? A divided city, poised between a gleaming future, voted in poll after poll the most livable city in the world as a result of its socialist and social democratic reforms, and a torturous past, with both an absorbing intellectual and cultural tradition, in large part thanks to its Jewish population, and a breeding ground for anti-Semitism and perhaps cradle of the Zionist worldview that is currently inflaming the Middle East, or in the view of the Global South, West Asia. All these aspects of the city were on view this last holiday season as the city opened new museums devoted to its history. The newly restored Wien Museum, which did its best to question and foreground aspects of the city's troubled past, and the Strauss House, a privately owned monument to the three Strauss family members of composers and musicians who had a popular tune, often a waltz, for every occasion. These included the Revolution March for the 1848 uprising, which saw barricades in front of the city's most famous landmark, St. Stephen's Cathedral, and the demolition polka, written at the time of the pulling down of the medieval city wall to create the modern ring. That work was done mostly by migrants, shipped in and then shipped out as the work was finished with the dust from the wall causing pulmonary tuberculosis, called the Viennese disease, in the workers and residents for the next five decades after the mid-1850s, and recalling the U.S. use of Chinese to perform the dangerous work of building the Intercontinental Railroad in the Sierra Nevadas, where many of them perished and where, like that on the ring, their work was never acknowledged. The city's reputation as most livable begins with affordable housing, with 40% of all housing either public or subsidized by the city, and 60% of all tenants living in these homes. It was during the time of Red Vienna, following the First World War, that large-scale housing was built for the city's poorest, who moved out of the hovels that barely sheltered them to modern apartments with electric and gas, utilities publicly owned, as was and is, the majestic and cheap transit system consisting of subways, buses, and trolleys seamlessly crisscrossing the city. Of course, as in any global city, public housing is now being contested, with the omnipresent cranes, the signs of new private apartment complexes and condos being erected. As the Veen put it, housing, quote, is becoming a commodity. And as the exhibit said disapprovingly, fixation on ownership does nothing to foster solidarity. The city continues to be one of the great centers for both performing and visual arts, and of course, the city of music. The latter was on display at the Vienna Concert Hall, where the Vienna Symphony, under the baton of 83-year-old conducting phenom Christoph Eschenbach, performed a spirited, energetic, and passionate rendition of Tchaikovsky's Opus 35, led by Bloomington, Indiana's own Joshua Bell's superb phrasings on an equally spirited violin, followed by a more conventional number from the opera Eugene Onegin and the holiday staple ballet suite from The Nutcracker. On display also was Raphael's tapestry designs at the Kunsthistorisch, or Art History Museum, one of which featured the evangelist Paul getting help from above to strike down a rich man who refused to share his wealth. 
giving the lie in the present to the latest neoliberal guilt-assuaging mechanism, effective altruism, which in Sam Bankman-Fried mode simply translates as steal as much as you can and give a little back loudly. Then there was Michelangelo's anatomically perfect male nudes at the Albertina culminating in a room full of Egon Schiele's twisted, contorted male and female nudes, the expression of desperate sexuality in a world amidst the First World War in pain and chaos. A tortured history. Behind every great fortune is a great crime, and Vienna's fortune was founded on kidnapping and ransom. In the 12th century, Richard the Lionhearted, returning from the Crusades, which were themselves the occasion of mass looting, was discovered in disguise when he used gold coins lifted from the Byzantium Empire. His British kingdom paid a huge amount to redeem him, and it was with this money that Vienna built its city walls. Speculation in the city also reached a frenzy when the crash of the Viennese stock market in 1873 triggered a global recession, devastated the U.S. economy, and resulted in a rapid monopolization in the Gilded Age era of the robber barons. The city does, unfortunately, have a history of rabid anti-Semitism, openly paraded during the fin de siècle administration of its mayor, Karl Luger. Luger, founder of the Christian Social Democratic Party, did bring the city's utilities, transportation, gas, water, and electricity under public control, but he rationalized these takeovers by xenophobic means as a method of warding off British attempts at controlling the city. While Vienna's globally famous culture was being defined by the likes in psychology of Freud's psychoanalysis and discovery of the unconscious and drama by, according to Freud, his double Arthur Schnitzler, by the expressionism of painters like Max Oppenheimer, whose work is on display at the Leopold, and Oskar Kokoschka at the Albertina Modern, and in music, with the 12-tone discordant compositions of Arnold Schoenberg, an explanation of which is on display at the Schoenberg Center, all originating from a Jewish milieu, and Luger gave open expression to Jewish stereotyping and inflamed prejudice. Two of the city's most famous one-time residents were formed in this crucible, Theodore Erzl, the founder of Zionism, which is currently threatening to lead the world into a full-scale war in West Asia or the Middle East, originally favored assimilation for Vienna's Jewish population, but because of the virulence of the anti-Semitism in the city, he turned instead to embracing a Jewish separatist homeland and state, now become the apartheid state of Israel. The other famous visitor from his hometown in Linz was Adolf Hitler, who arrived in the city during the last three years of Luger's reign, where his own lethal form of anti-Semitism was hatched. There's a statue of Luger at the Volksoper, the People's Opera, site of light opera and operetta, where the mayor helped found and which over the holidays revived an operetta from the time of the Nazi invasion overlaid with a contemporary plot about its Jewish producers and directors' fear of what happens to them. The most interesting Luger statue, though, sits opposite the MAC, the Museum of Applied Arts, which boasted a fascinating exhibition highlighting both the creativity and wastefulness of fashion in the textile industry, which alongside the arms industry, and in particular the Pentagon, accounts for over 10% of the world's CO2 and 20% of its water pollution. The statue presents a heroic Luger posed atop the workers of the city of whom he claimed to be their champion. The interesting thing about the statue, though, is that it has, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests and defaming of slave traders statues in Europe, graffiti markings all over it. The back of the statue has the word Nazi scrawled on it, and the front says, I never felt so free. Markings made in 2022. The city left both the statue and the graffiti a fitting way of both displaying and commenting on its conflictual and tortured period of history. The not-so-distant Nazi past. When, in 1938, the Nazis marched into the city and subsequently, according to the Wien, even they were surprised by the virulence with which the Viennese persecuted and robbed its Jewish population. As detailed in a 2023 novel, the Vienna writer's circle, Freud, before leaving the city, was required to provide a complete accounting of everything he owned. And today, visitors to the Freud Museum will find much of his collection of African and other artifacts, which he was forced to leave when he moved to London. The systemic looting was carried out by the vacuously named Department of Property Transactions and included stealing much of the artwork, particularly of Max Oppenheimer and Oskar Kokoschka, with Oppenheimer's abundant and important work sidelined because it had to be left when he fled. Indeed, there's a painting in the Wien donated by a Gestapo officer. And Kokoschka's pioneering expressionist work drained of its energy in exile except for a brief anti-fascist mural period during the war. 
the novel, whose central characters are a pair of upper-middle-class Jewish writers who are part of Freud's circle, which met regularly at a Café Mozart, details an identity change ring to erase their Jewish past so they can continue writing and publishing under their new Aryan names. Except for one major incident, though, as Chekhov says, when a gun appears in the first act, it must go off in the final act, and this one does. There's a passive resistance, and does contrast with a recent article in The Guardian, which describes the work of a Viennese woman in exile as part of the communist-led Osterreich Freiheitsfront, the Austrian Liberation Front, where women who could carry messages more easily constituted the communications connective tissue of a group that actively gathered information and ultimately helped to sabotage German factories. The past is now being questioned, but in some ways the questioning is muted, a testimony to the persistence of the Nazi past. At the Wien, there's a room where the story of an attempt at denazification, which quickly is snuffed out, unfolds. However, the information is concealed behind a series of closed closet doors, so visitors opening the doors will get the story of the restoration of the past. But those not wanting to hear the story can simply walk through the room without opening the doors. There was a similar reticence in the Natural History Museum's exhibit, The Changing Arctic. Very good on the shrinking of the Arctic to the point where the continent now absorbs half the solar energy it did in 1980. And in pointing out that the Austrian Alps are expected to be entirely free of ice in the next 50 years. However, there's not a word in the exhibit about the geopolitical strategic nature of the continent as source of now more easily mineable minerals. Siberia, the largest bordering landmass, was seen as the grand prize if the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine on Russia had succeeded in breaking up the country. The story told behind closed doors at the Wien is devastating. The denazification period effectively ended in 1947-48 when the Allies, U.S., British, French, swung over into the Cold War, with the new enemy being the USSR. The story quickly changed in Austria, from its citizens lining the streets to support Hitler to Austria being the first victim of Hitler. What followed was a rapid re-entry of former Nazis back into power. The Albertina Modern, for example, details how Oskar Kokoschka had to go into exile. But a lesser expressionist artist, Herbert Bockel, joined the Nazi party in 41. In 46, was censored for failing to register as a former party member, but by 52, was reinstated and represented Austria at that year's Venice Biennale, the top national honor for any artist. The actor Paula Wesley, star of the Nazi film Homecoming, which justified the invasion of Poland, by 1948 was playing a half-Jewish victim of the Gestapo. When a bombed-out and then-rebuilt Staatsoper, the National Opera House, reopened in 1955, the opening night conductor of Beethoven's only opera, Fidelio, was Karl Bohm, a Nazi sympathizer who the Allies had banned from public appearances. This year's world-renowned Vienna Symphony New Year's concert featured a long video intermission about two boys who romp in the town of Linz over the music of Anton Bruckner in this his centennial. The lilting green fields and the medieval churches, though, never hint that this, Hitler's hometown, was the site of a massive German wartime arms industry. The Wien does an excellent job at disgorging this history, but it's one that, in its display, is still kept in the closet. Peace and Death Finally, two exhibits summed up where we are today and where we have come in 2023. The first piece at the Judenplatz Museum in the square that houses a memorial to the Jewish dead in the Holocaust had an excellent piece by a Palestinian artist literalizing the prophet Isaiah's words about transforming swords into plowshares with a rifle on top that then transmutes into a shovel below. The museum points out that the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, and the Arab word, salem, are nearly the same, but then also features an exhibit with the Oslo Accords, which were supposedly the blueprint for a Palestinian state, written on toilet paper, which is what they have been consigned to. The problem with the exhibit, though, is that at various points it presents peace as a thing of the past after October 7th in Israel and after the Russian special military operation in Ukraine. These events, the museum states, have, quote, destroyed all prospects for peace for the time being. This is false. At the moment when peace becomes a political issue, i.e. a ceasefire in Gaza and a negotiated settlement in Ukraine, taking Russia into account in any consideration of European security, the museum denies its efficacy, which cannot but lead one to conclude that peace was not a real position, but only a politically expedient one used in the museum world to solicit funds. A far more telling summing up of 2023 was to be had at the Dome, the Museum of St. Stephen's Cathedral, whose exhibit, Being Mortal, might rather simply be titled Death. 
And 2023 was a year not of peace, but of death in Ukraine and Israel and Gaza, with more death on the way as we usher in 2024 in Yemen, Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, and Iran, and with a potentially new killing field involving global war in Taiwan. The images in the dome are startling. James Enzor's skeleton seeking warmth in his 1896 death chasing a flock of mortals to Max Beckman's 1916 frail stretched out victims of World War I waged by the French and German elite on its working class in assault to the star of the show, Alfred Kuban's corpse-like, faceless woman, not a Florence Nightingale angel of mercy, but an angel of death with her hand over the mouth of a lifeless corpse of a soldier in bed. Young death, is Gunter Bruce's 2020 watercolor depiction in the tradition of James Enzor and Kuban of a skeleton in tattered black garb that suggests the toll on the planet's youth by COVID, drugs, and war. And finally, there is Jan Bruegel's, Jan Bruegel the Younger's Triumph of Death, a reimagining of his granddad's painting where death is even more all-encompassing and omnipresent than in the original, with this version painted in 1602, two years into Europe's most vicious killing based on religion, the Thirty Years' War. If death was a more fitting summation of 2023 than peace, that theme also resounded at the end of the Staatsoper's magnificent staging of Richard Strauss's Electra, where the end result of all of Electra's scheming to revenge her father's death by having her brother kill her mother results on stage in Electra herself being strangled by the ropes suspended from the headless giant of her father that looms over her. Her revenge condemns her as death shadows even the most comfortable European cities and as the world often propelled by the excuse of revenge, seems to move inexorably toward more confrontation and destruction. This is Bro on the Global Cultural Beat, Breaking Glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.